0: If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can open to Philippians chapter 3. Hopefully you picked up a bulletin on the way in. You can track along with an outline of the sermon that's provided there. While you turn to Philippians 3 without getting too mushy-gushy, I just want to tell you, you're my favorite church. I've had the opportunity in the last couple of weeks to be at some other churches and to speak at some different things, uh, churches here in town. And uh, I love you guys, I'm thankful for this church, I'm thankful for what God uh, has done and is doing and will do in this church, and uh, I'm excited at the beginning of the year to take a few weeks to talk to you uh, about the church. And I hope that as we talk about the church here at the beginning of 2023, you don't hear me saying, we're a terrible church and we need to be completely different. I hope what you hear is, this is what God wants from His church, and where we're on the right track, we need to stay on the right track, and where we have things that we need to work on, we need to work on those things. And none of us has any illusion that we are a perfect church, uh, but I'm excited to study with you here at the beginning of the year about what it is that God wants from us as a church. So we're several weeks into this series Week number one, we looked at Matthew chapter 16 and we talked about the word church. And I told you that the Greek word is ekklesia and it literally means congregation or assembly. And the thing about congregations is they congregate. It's what a congregation does. And the thing about assemblies of people is that they assemble together. And one of the things we emphasized In the very first week is that part of what it means to be a church is that we are together, consistently, regularly together for the purposes of worship. We talked about the church as the body of Christ, what Paul had to say to the church in Corinth. Every church has different members, different parts of the body. We don't need all hands. We don't need all eyes. We don't need all feet. We need all the different parts of the body. And we said in that second Sunday That Jesus is concerned with the health of his church. Americans tend to be concerned with the number of people sitting in a room on a Sunday morning. Or the amount of money in a bank account. Jesus is concerned with the health of his body. And for his body to be healthy, every member has to play its role within the body. Week number three, we're the family of God. We were God's enemies... But by His grace, He has adopted us into His family. We are His children as members of the church. Corey preached the fourth uh, Sunday, the fourth sermon here. We talked about the church being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he made the distinction, biblically, rightly, that as individual Christians, we have the Holy Spirit. Paul says, you in your body, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But he also says that you, the church... You collectively as a group, as you congregate together and as you assemble together, you, Paul says, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that was week four. Week five, last week, we're a holy nation. We looked at 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? Why has God made you into this group of people, into a church? It's so that you might proclaim the excellencies of ...of the one who called you from darkness and into light. We exist as the people of God to proclaim in our singing, our praying, our preaching... ...and our witness the excellencies of God. So this morning we come to the idea that we're citizens of heaven. And I want to talk to you about the book of Philippians... ...and Philippi as a city and the church that was located in this city. The Apostle Paul was working with a man named Silas and another man named Timothy... And he was on what we traditionally call Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, They set out from the city of Antioch. And I'll throw a map on the screen. You can see Antioch is over on the far right of the Mediterranean Sea. Paul's intention was just to travel through what we would call Turkey, Roman provinces of Asia and Cappadocia and all of this area. And God had a different plan, and he sent Paul across the Aegean Sea for the first time a missionary left what we would call the Middle East and went to what we would call today Europe. And he crossed the Aegean Sea, went to Greece, and one of his first stops was in the city of Philippi. Now you can read about this in Acts 15 and 16. I don't want to go into all the detail and all the story. It's familiar to many of you and it's available to you if you need to brush up. What I want to make a note of is the fact that Paul did not stay long in Philippi. He had a very brief stay And during his very brief stay in Philippi, there was a problem, an issue, a question, a misunderstanding about Paul's status as a Roman citizen. As a citizen, Paul had certain rights. And in Philippi, those rights were violated. He was wrongfully arrested, he was wrongfully beaten. He was wrongfully detained. None of those things were supposed to happen to a Roman citizen. And when they tried to just send Paul off, they had a pretty serious conversation about the fact that Paul was a Roman citizen and his rights had been violated. So we'll come back to that idea of citizenship in just a minute. One of the things I want you to see in Philippians is Philippians 1.1. Just briefly, because we're talking about the church, I just want to make this note. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. And I just want you to note those three groups of people the saints, the overseers, and the deacons. This is not the main point of what we're talking about this morning, but it's an important point. These are the essential pieces, essential needed for a New Testament church. The saints are us. They're not really, really good, super holy folks that achieve a level of perfection and goodness in their life and get recognized as saints. Saints means holy ones, set apart ones. It simply refers to Christians. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're part of the church, you're one of these saints. So there's saints. You've got to have some saints to have a church. You can't have a church without Christians, Secondly, Paul talks about overseers. The Greek word is episkopoi, it's bishops. It's the same word that he uses interchangeably in other places in the New Testament with the words pastors or elders. All of those words refer to the same group of men called by God, set apart to lead the church. You need a group of men called by God, set apart to lead the church, particularly through teaching. And thirdly, he talks about deacons, which is just a Greek word that means servants. That's the essential structure of a church. Now, I'm not not suggesting anything to you, and I'm not trying to work myself out of a job, but let me just make a few observations. Paid staff at a church, totally optional. Take it or leave it. Churches all over the world that do not have paid staff. Now, in our context, I would say there's pretty good reason to have paid staff. And hopefully you agree with that. But it's totally optional. It's not essential to the nature of a church. Committees, optional. Take them or leave them. Not essential to the DNA of a church. A band or a choir, totally optional. Not necessary. You understand we have churches, smaller churches in our town that don't have people who can lead musically and sometimes heaven forbid, they just play music through the sound system and sing along with it. Guess what? Churches can do that. They're they're a church. You need a group of believers, saints. You need a group of pastors, overseers, bishops, whatever term you want to use. They all refer to the same group. You need a group of men set apart, called to serve. That's the essential DNA, the structure of a New Testament church. All sorts of other things. Buildings, optional might have good reason to have one. You don't need one to be a church. Programming and a schedule. It's helpful. It's not essential. This is the essential structure of what a New Testament church look, looks like. The saints, the overseers, and the deacons. Now, Philippians 3. The big idea of our passage. The church is populated by citizens of heaven. So odds are, in a room like this, most of us have United States passports. Some of you may not be American citizens. You may have a passport uh, that originates from another country. But most of us would say we're American citizens. All of us who claim the name Jesus Christ, who fall under this big category of saints, of Christians, need to understand that as Christians called to be part of the church, we are, whatever our earthly citizenship may or may not be, we are citizens of heaven. So, take your copy of the scriptures. We'll read our passage and then we'll ask God to bless the reading of his word. Philippians 3:17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That's the word of God. Father, we pray this morning that as we have read from the scriptures, that your word would be alive to us that as a church where we need to be encouraged, we would find it in this passage, and where we need to be uh, confronted and corrected, that we would find it in this passage. Father, we pray for those who are here uh, who do not have citizenship in heaven, and we pray this morning that you would open their eyes to the truth about the Savior who came from heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But well, depending on how you count, if you want to count up all the countries in the world, you will come up with somewhere between 195 and 206. 195 is the low end that I found this week, 206 is the high end. Uh, you understand the big countries are easy to distinguish, the United States, China, uh, Brazil, those are obvious, you can tally those up. There's a lot of little bitty small, what they call micronations, and not everyone agrees on how to count those. So we'll just say, 200 nations, give or take, in the world. The world population today is right at, right above, 8 billion people. 8 billion people living on planet Earth spread out amongst 200 different nations. And in any given year, people tell us, statisticians and researchers tell us, that somewhere around 250 million people every year will leave the country where they are a citizen to go to another country. Now I'm not talking about people who go on vacation or on a mission trip, just a short-term thing. I'm talking about people who get up and they leave their home and they move to some other country for some other purpose. Researchers tell us that the number is somewhere around 250 million people, which is around 1 in 30 on the planet. It's a remarkable number it's so a lot of people coming and going, and there's a lot of things happening in the lives of these people who are coming and who are going. Some of them are fleeing oppression, and they're refugees. They're seeking asylum in another place, and they have absolutely no intention of going back to their home country because their lives are in mortal danger. Other people are not finding themselves in mortal danger they simply look at the opportunities available to them and their family where they're at and they look at people who live in other places and they do the math in their head and they say I think my family would have better opportunity there than we have here and so you have people all over the world moving for different reasons you have some people who say I'm going to go work in a place on some sort of long-term, short-term, medium-term visa where I'll be there. I won't be a citizen there. I'll keep my citizenship here. And maybe they're going to go for a few months or a few years or an indeterminate amount of time. But there's an awful lot of people moving around the world. Lots of people moving around the world. If you have ever tried to move around the world for work, or because you're seeking asylum somewhere, or you're looking for opportunities somewhere, or even if you're traveling to Kenya or overseas, you know that it matters where your citizenship lies. When you go to leave one country and go to another country, people want to know, where are you a citizen? Why are you leaving that place, and why are you going to this place? And when you go to that place, for example, our Kenya team will find themselves in Kenya They'll have to give a reason, why are we going to Kenya? And then they'll be asked, why are you going back to that place? Why are you going here? Why are you going there? Where is your citizenship at? And why is uh, all this moving about taking place? So this question of citizenship is relevant today, and it was relevant in Paul's day. In Paul's day, for those living in the Roman Empire, there was a great benefit in being a Roman citizen being a Roman citizen. Paul was a Roman citizen. There was a couple of ways you could be a Roman citizen. One, you could be born into a family that granted you citizenship. Two, is you could serve in the military and after a period of service, if you survived, you might be granted citizenship. Or three, if you had enough money, you could just pay for it. But there was value in being a Roman citizen. And the majority of people living under Roman rule in the first century were not citizens. But this was an important question. Are you a citizen or are you not a citizen? And it's to this church in Philippi, this very church, that witnessed the dispute about Paul's Roman citizenship. When they thought about Paul, they would have thought, you know what? When Paul was here, they they didn't treat him like a citizen. They arrested him and they beat him. And they threw him in prison back in the maximum security hold of the county jail. They had him all the way back in the back, locked up. They violated his rights as a citizen. That's what would have popped into their mind when they thought about Paul. And it's to this church that Paul writes a letter and he says to them, You, Christians in Philippi, have something even more valuable than Roman citizenship. You have been granted citizenship in heaven. Now, for you and I, living 2,000 years later on the other side of the world, it's easy for us to say, put them on a scale, would I rather be a Roman citizen or a citizen of heaven? Yes, citizen of heaven, thank you. It's easy, because the Roman Empire is gone. That has no value to us. But the application for you and I is to say, you're a citizen of the United States? Well, if you're a Christian, you're also a citizen of heaven. And how ought you weigh out the balance of those two realities? We're going to talk about Philippians 3, but I want to start with a few extra passages. What other Bible passages, other Bible verses can help us think about what it means to be a citizen of heaven? Firstly, just to reference and refer back to what we talked about last week, it's important to understand that as the church, we are a holy nation. And I'm not going to re-preach the sermon from last week, But we talked about 1 Peter 2 last week. The church is a holy nation. And I'm just making the connection that nationhood and citizenship are related ideas. So if you want to think through what it means to be a citizen of heaven, if you want to think through what it means to be part of a holy nation, these two ideas, these two passages have to be coupled together. Secondly, Jesus encouraged believers to render To Caesar, what belonged to Caesar, and to God, what belonged to God. Luke 20. This is towards the end of Jesus' life. You probably remember the passage. Luke chapter 20, some of Jesus' enemies came to him and they're trying to trap him. And as they're trying to trap Jesus, they're also looking for their own benefit, and they pose a question to Jesus, and the question is, Jesus, you keep talking about a kingdom, kingdom, there's a kingdom, the kingdom of God, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Rome? Should we pay taxes to Rome? If Jesus said yes, they thought they would be able to trap him, but what they really wanted was Jesus to say no. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but as long as there have been taxes, there have been people trying not to pay them. That's not anything new. Human beings, this is human nature, when someone imposes a tax on you, their mind begins to work and they think, how can I not pay it? I know this is true because it's human nature and because my wife's a tax accountant. And people come to her with their personal returns, their business returns, all their things, and they lay all these things on the table and they look her in the eye and they say, tell me how I don't have to pay taxes. That's the question. That's what people want from a tax accountant. Tell me how I don't have to pay taxes. And well, maybe you could do this, maybe you could do this, but guess what? At the end of the day, you're going to have to pay some taxes. So these guys want to not pay taxes. They come to Jesus as some sort of spiritual CPA. Jesus, do we have to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus takes the coin and He says, whose picture's on it? And they say Caesar's. And he says, why don't you just give to Caesar what's Caesar? And why don't you give to God what belongs to God? And what Jesus is doing in that answer is not only brilliant, but it's describing to his followers that they have dual obligations in life. Jesus is saying, you have a legitimate, real obligation to pay taxes, Just because you're part of a kingdom of heaven doesn't mean you get a pass on taxes. There's no line on your tax return that says, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm out. That doesn't exist. Jesus didn't intend for it to exist. You have a real obligation to pay your taxes. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And Jesus says you should give to God what is God's. You have both of these obligations. Hanging over you as a Christian living in this world. The question becomes, how do we sort those out? How do we balance those out? So that brings me to my next point. The Bible recognizes the importance of civil obedience and civil disobedience. And it takes wisdom to know which one you ought to do in any given circumstance. So I just mentioned to you Jeremiah twenty nine seven an Old Testament passage. Jeremiah wrote to the people who were living in exile in Babylon, and Jeremiah said to those exiles, you need to be good citizens. You need to pay your taxes. You need to plant gardens. You need to serve on the PTA, the PTO. You need to be good citizens. You need to be responsible. You need to be upstanding. You need to keep the laws in the place where you're living as best you can. Be good, productive citizens where God has sent you. In the New Testament, Peter and Paul pick up on this idea and they both say you as a Christian need to show respect to the governing authorities. You as a Christian need to show respect to the governing authorities. I know what's going on in your head right now. You're thinking to yourself, well, it'd be a whole lot easier to show respect if they'd be more respectable. I mean, have you watched the news lately? That's what you want me to respect? Yes. When Paul and Peter wrote those verses, do you think that Caesar was a highly respectable man? Upstanding morals, solid Judeo-Christian character. You think the Roman laws that were passed in that day were all completely rooted in biblical revelation and they're trying to honor God in the way that they govern their nation? No. It was a godless pagan society. And Peter and Paul said, you're living here. God has put you here. He's put these people in power for a purpose that you may or may not understand. And while you live underneath their authority, you ought to be respectful. Pay your taxes. Give honor where it's due. Civil obedience. There's also a concept built into the New Testament. You see it reflected in Acts chapter 4. That when the civil authorities tell you, as a Christian, to do something that is disobedient to God, you are obligated to give to God what is God's before you give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You're obligated to disobey the state if it means that you're going to be obedient to God. Sometimes Christians try to play cute with this and they try to invent all sorts of things. Well, I can't do this, I can't do that because I want to be obedient to God. So you don't play cute with it. You hold both of these realities in tension. You say, you know what, I need to give to Caesar what's Caesar's, what, what is God's, I need to give to God and... I need to be obedient and respectful to the state because God has put those people in authority over me. But I understand there may be a time where I have to disobey the state, the human government that I live under, in order to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you make that decision, you don't make it lightly, And you do it respecting the human government in place, knowing that there may be a consequence for you. But you understand my obedience to God has to come before my obedience to the state. Civil obedience and civil disobedience. So that's some background. Let's talk about Philippians chapter 3. And I just want to be honest with you. We're going to ask this question, what does Philippians 3 teach us about the church? The first go around as I outlined this passage, I left the first point off, and I said, I I just don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about other things. There's other stuff that I want to say. And about halfway through the week, I got convicted, and I said, a sermon is not about what I want to say. It has nothing to do with what I want to say. It has to do with what the Bible says. So rather than me standing up and saying to you what I want to say and what's on my mind and my heart, let's just listen to what the text says In its context as much as we can. So, what does Philippians 3 teach us? Number one, the church will always face opposition. We will always face opposition. I think we need to remember this. I think Paul knew we needed to remember it. I think the Spirit inspired this passage this way for a reason. Because when I say to you that we're citizens of heaven, it would be easy for you and me to get cocky and to say, ah, citizens of heaven. Sounds like we're on the winning team. Sounds like everything's going to go our way. God's with us. He's not with them. Sounds like as we gather together for the church, everything's going to be easy. Everything's going to be smooth. We're just going to grow. We're going to get bigger. Lostness and darkness will just crumble before us. The whole world will get saved, and then Jesus can come back Thursday. We're citizens of heaven. We have the king of heaven on our side. All those things are true. We are citizens of heaven. We do have the king of heaven on our side. Rather, we're on his side. It's also true that we'll face opposition. And we need to be honest about it and expect it as a church. Notice what Paul says in verse 18. He says, many, many, not a few, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he says to the church in Philippi, I'm telling you this now and I've told you this before. We've we've talked about this in the past. It's nothing new. I'm telling you again now, many people walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, if I just asked you without reading the passage, make a list of people who you might consider to be enemies of the cross of Christ throughout history or in the present day. You might come up with some Roman emperors. People like Nero and Domitian, men who openly persecuted the church, men who burned Christians as torches in the Colosseum, and you might say, those are bad guys, enemies of the cross. You might be philosophically minded and you might think about men like Charles Darwin and Frederick Nietzsche, men who openly opposed Christian faith and who proposed godless, secular worldviews that have nothing to do with the Bible. And you might say, those men, they've had a tremendous impact on human society. They are enemies of the cross. You might, if you're making a list, think about uh, Stalin or Mao, communist Russia, communist China. You might say, these are men who established nations that were literally hell-bent on destroying the Christian faith, from within their geographic sphere of influence. They wreaked havoc on the church. You might think about terrorist organizations like ISIS or the Taliban, or you pick the iteration, whoever it is today, whoever it's going to be tomorrow. These are people with a non-Christian worldview, an Islamic worldview, and they want to destroy Christianity and every other faith from the face of the earth. You might put them on your list of enemies of the cross. All those would be fine answers. Notice how Paul defines them in Philippians 3, verse 19. He says, Their God is their belly. That does not mean they go to the buffet every day for lunch. That means they have appetites and desires and they follow them instinctively. Whatever they desire, they go after it, it controls them, their desires. Their desires, their belly, is their God. They're just controlled by their desires and their appetites. He says, secondly, that they glory in their shame. So they know that what they're doing is wicked and they're not sorry about it. They don't feel embarrassed about it. They actually boast and brag about their sin. They're proud of their sin. They glory in their shame. And thirdly, he says that they have their mindset on earthly things. They give no thought to God and His glory. They have no care or concern about heaven or eternity. They're only concerned about the here and the now. You only live once, so get what you can get now and have all the fun that you can have now. Their minds are set on earthly things. Listen, you do not have to be the dictator of a communist nation to be an enemy of the cross. You just have to follow your desires and let your belly or your instincts or your wants be your God. You don't have to set your life to eradicate the Christian faith from the face of the earth to be an enemy of the cross. All you have to do is set your mind on something earthly other than God and His glory. That's all you have to do. You don't have to be a great philosopher and come up with a whole system of thought to oppose the Christian faith and teach it in the academy and influence millions of people to be an enemy of the cross. All you have to do, according to what Paul says, is you have to be proud in your rebellion against God. Glory in your shame. If you do that, your God is your belly and you glory in your shame and your mind is set on earthly things. In Paul's mind, you are an enemy of the cross. Church, there will always be many who walk as enemies of the cross. And like Paul, we don't say that gleefully. Paul says, I'm I'm telling you this with tears. Because when I describe these people, you know them. And I know them. They're friends, family members, co-workers, children, grandchildren, parents, grandparents. People who walk as enemies of the cross. They follow their desires. They glory in their shame, and their mind is completely set on earthly things. Enemies of the cross. Paul says there will be many of them. The church will always face opposition, and it will come from people who follow their their desires, celebrate their sin, and focus on earthly things. Secondly, the church will be home in heaven. We're not home now. We will be home in heaven. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. If you're a Christian, you have something more real than the dark blue navy passport that you need to get into Kenya on a mission trip. You have something more real than the birth certificate or the naturalization papers that say you're a citizen of the United States. If you're a Christian, your citizenship is in heaven. And Paul says, from it, from heaven... We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Our Savior will come from heaven. And when He comes, it will not be the first time that He's come. We're talking here about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And before you can have any idea of what that's about you've got to understand his first coming and to understand that you have to go back not just 2,000 years ago to Bethlehem you have to go back to eternity past eternity past where the triune God father son and spirit that we just sang glory to glory to the father glory to the son glory to the spirit the triune God in eternity past planned to create a people and planned to save a rebellious people The Lamb was slayed before the foundation of the world in a real sense because that was the plan before the foundation of the world. That God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, would take the form of the creature that He created in His own image, the creature that defied the Creator's role in His life, and that He would live among us. The Bible says that in the fullness of time, Jesus came and He was born of a virgin. The Bible says he was born like us in every respect, yet without sin. No sin nature. Never sinned. Perfectly kept the law of God in the things that he did, in what he said, in what he thought, in what he felt. A life of perfect obedience to God's law. Why? So that at the end of his life, he might die a substitutionary death. Galatians 3, that he might be cursed for you. 2 Corinthians 5, that he might be made sin. The one who had none might be made sin for you. And he died. And they buried him. And three days later, the Bible says he rose from the grave. And 40 days later, the Bible says he ascended to heaven, back to the throne of the universe where he currently sits, and he intercedes for his people until the day when he comes back. And that's what Paul's talking about in Philippians 3. We are waiting for our Savior to come from heaven. And you understand, if you're a believer, this will be a second coming. The first time He came was to suffer and die. The shepherd dying for the sheep. The second time He comes, it will be to bring full and final salvation for His people. And to judge the living and the dead. If you're here and you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is, His life of obedience, His sacrificial death, His resurrection from the dead, His ascension to the throne of heaven, and the promise of His return. If you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have an incredible offer for you today. You can become a citizen of heaven. Repent of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your name is written down as a citizen of heaven. And with the rest of the church, you can eagerly await the return of our Savior, our Savior who will come from heaven. So we're not there yet. We're waiting. And as we wait, we are strangers, exiles, and sojourners is not our home. We don't truly belong here. We belong with the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who gave his life to purchase the church. The one who died in our place that we might be citizens of heaven. We belong with him, but we're here now. Strangers, sojourners, and exiles. I love the way the book of Hebrews describes this. On your own, you can read the rest of the context in Hebrews 11. But it says in Hebrews 11, These all, excuse my typo, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and they've acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city." The men and women of Hebrews 11, their minds were not set on earthly things. Their minds were set on heavenly things. And they were looking for a heavenly city. And the Bible says that when the Lord Jesus returns, He will bring that city with Him to earth. The new Jerusalem will come down, and God will be with His people, and His people will be with Him. And our citizenship will be in the place where we live the new heavens, and the new earth. It's not come yet. And so now we're strangers, exiles, and sojourners. Lastly, the church is called to faithfulness. The church is called to faithfulness. In this passage, there are imperatives on either end of what we read. So, in Philippians 3.17, there's an imperative, a command. And then in uh, Philippians 4, one. there's another imperative, another command. And in the middle, all the verbs in the middle are indicative verbs. They're just statements of fact in the middle. This is who you are. This is what's going to happen. The church is waiting for the Lord Jesus. He's going to transform us. All just statements of fact. But the things that we're called to do bracket the passage, verse 17 and verse 1. So in verse 17, it says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk. According to the example you have in us. Keep your eyes. Join in imitating. Follow the example. Chapter 4 verse 1. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Follow the example that's been set. And stand firm in the Lord. What Paul's describing is a call to faithfulness. This is where we circle back and we begin to think about who we are as a church. Who we are as a church. You understand that as a church, our calling is not to be cool. Does that mean we have to be as nerdy as possible? You may think that we're doing our best, but no, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means the calling, the expectation on us is not to be cool. The expectation for a church is not to be innovative. Now, does that mean that we just have to be the kind of grouchy church people that say, well, this is the way we've always done it? No, we don't have to be those kind of people. But you know what? There may be a good reason that we've always done a certain thing a certain way. So innovation is not the calling It's not the calling. The calling's faithfulness. It's not coolness. It's not innovation. It's also not political correctness. Our calling is not to take the gospel message and to mold it and shape it into something that enemies of the cross will want to hear. That's not the calling of the church. Now, does that mean that we have to try to be offensive to enemies of the cross? No, the gospel will be offensive enough. We don't have to try to be offensive. We shouldn't try to be offensive. You just try to be faithful. Some of you, as we've talked about the church and what the church is called to do and not called to do, some of you have probably had your mind drawn to 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul says, I've become all things to all people so that all by all means I might win some. And you think to yourself, well, shouldn't we as a church do anything and everything in the name of winning people? And my answer is no. We shouldn't do anything and everything in the name of winning people. What Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 9 is his intentional commitment as a Christian to sacrifice his own rights, his own rights, so that other people would hear the gospel message. He's not laying out how we ought to structure our church and who we ought to be as a church and what we should do as a church. The calling is faithfulness. Faithfulness. You understand That someday the Lord Jesus will return. He will return and he will judge the living and the dead. And the Bible describes rewards for his people for their faithfulness. You understand that on that day, the Lord Jesus will not be handing out medals to churches saying, Emmanuel, please come forward for your medal. You were the first church to come up with this particular idea. That's not not what the reward is for. You understand that likewise, he's not going to call a church up and say, so-and-so church, when everyone else started changing, you held on to the old ways of doing things. So here's your medal. Those, Those things are neither here nor there. It's not the point. It's not the issue. You understand that there will be no medal ceremony for the best-dressed church. You had the nicest suit. You had the skinniest jeans. You had the most expensive. None of that stuff matters. Is not important. It's neither here nor there. You understand that on that day of reward, no one's going to get called up to the front because... Your praise band never missed a note. I don't know if you watched our early service this morning. We had a guitar that just went to sleep right at the beginning of the service. So we had about 30 seconds of very awkwardness. We just kind of stood and looked at each other. It worked in the second service. It's not like there's going to be a post-game meeting where he says, Hey, look, negative points for the guitar in early service. But it's early service, so it's not that big a deal. But it, you got it together in the second service, so you, here's your medal. way to go. It was per, that, it's, not, it's nothing. It's less than nothing. It's what Paul describes to the Corinthians as wood, hay, and stubble. On the day of judgment, it all gets burned up and it doesn't matter. One bit. What matters is faithfulness. Were you faithful to the gospel message? Were you faithful to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness and into light? Were you faithful to take that gospel message to the people who didn't know about the excellencies of God? And were you faithful to let that gospel message change you as a people? Did you have your mind set on earthly things or was your mind set on heavenly things? Church is called to faithfulness. God calls His church to follow the example that's been set and to stand firm. Follow the example and stand firm. The call for us, brothers, sisters, church, Christians, saints, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved.